right, take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to make a suggestion to you. I suggest that we at Crestwood Baptist Church in Lumberton, Texas, begin a revolution today. Back when I was a teenager, and then when I worked with teenagers, one of the things that I understood was that the job of a teenager is to rebel. I could take some time to establish that educationally and psychologically, but I'll just let it hang for a few weeks. But um, revolutions mark the history of America. We seem to be uh, confronting a group in this day and age, whatever you think about them, the Occupy group that has sprouted wings all across America by their very definition are about revolution. And I suggest that we at Crestwood start a healthy revolution today. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to study the landscape of America today and determine that divorce is prevalent here. Jerry Vines, who was once president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastors a struggling little megachurch out in Florida with several tens of thousands of members, I understand, preached a sermon not too long ago that highlighted the fact that if there are 1.8 marriages that take place, weddings if you want to call it that, of those 1.8 that take place, one will fail and end in divorce. He went on to say that in the county in which his church is located, in a particular year there were more divorces than there were weddings. You don't have to be a brain surgeon in America today to read the landscape and figure out that divorce is prevalent and commonplace. I don't want you to raise your hands or anything like that, any kind of show uh, to what I'm about to say. But if I were to say, if you've been touched by divorce in your family, either in your immediate family or extended family, raise your hand. My suspicion is that every one of us would have to raise our hands. Divorce in America is prevalent. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure that out. So what I would like for us to do is pause long enough this morning to ask what seems to be the unasked question among leaders in our country. With the prevalence of divorce that we can look out and see, the question that I rarely hear asked is, why? Why is it that divorce has become so commonplace in our time that we don't even really think about it being anything other than normal? Well, for sure, the reason cannot be tied to lack of information. You go look on Amazon.com or you go look at any of the major bookstores that are around and do a search of any kind, whether visual or online, and look at things that suggest how to have a happy marriage, you'll find all kinds of information. The psychobabble works overtime on telling us, here's how to do it. But that doesn't seem to be working, or at least it falls on deaf ears. So we have to ask ourselves, why all of the divorce that we find it so common? By the way, we can look inside the church, and we should always look inside the church. I like what one guy said. 
He said, when you go to start looking for the devil in the church, don't forget to start behind the pulpit. That's another church, not this one. (laughs) Or maybe it is this one. Anytime we want to stop and take stock of what's going on outside the walls, we need to be honest enough with ourselves to look at what's going on inside the walls of the church. And so let's just stop and ask ourselves, has there been some kind of a lack of emphasis inside the church on healthy marriages? And my answer to that is probably yes, but in large measure, no. We have lots of that. As a matter of fact, what tends to happen is inside the church, we have those holier-than-thou Christians, modern-day Pharisees, who look down their noses at people who are are going through or have gone through divorce and point their long crooked finger and say, shame on you for that. Churches have been guilty of crucifying people at some of the most vulnerable times in their lives. And divorce happens to be one of those times. One of my professors at Baylor University said it this way. He said that divorce is like an atomic bomb that leaves an emotional crater on those directly involved that takes forever to explore. And the radioactive fallout of that divorce that touches all those people on the outer edges of the relationships continue to do harm for years to come. Brilliant insight into the reality of a problem that really in America we've come to decide is not really a problem at all. Except that it is. Why is divorce so prevalent? With a church that says it's not God's ideal? With a society that gives all kinds of psychological input as to how to get through the difficulties of life and how to make relationships work? Why is divorce so prevalent? Let me just stop now that I have your attention and many of you already have your shields up. Let me say this to you. It is a tragedy, I believe, that one of the things that churches have done to divorce people is to alienate them and make them feel like they're second-class citizens. This will not be that kind of message. If you have been through divorce or contemplating divorce or someone in your family has gone through that, I want you to hear me say this. This is a grace message, not a judgment message. As a matter of fact, the reason I can say that is because I believe that what Jesus does in the position that he firmly takes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, by the way, if you haven't turned there already, go there. What Jesus firmly does is positions himself to say that there are people who are paying a price when it comes to the issue of divorce. And as Wade reminded us and gave you a hint ahead of time, I'm going to say it again. With God, people matter. And they sure better matter with God's people. So we come to this issue, a very difficult issue for most pastors to preach on because on any given Sunday, a wide percentage of the people in a typical congregation will have been touched directly by divorce. Hear me say this. This is a message of grace. And I say, let's start a revolution. Imagine for just a moment, as best you can, imagine what America would look like if divorce was rare. 
what would it look like? How would America have to be different if the overarching rule of life for us, in other words, the standard, was that marriages were happy and that marriages really worked? Can you see how different America would have to be from what it is today if that were the case? I I was doing some work. How Sometimes being a preacher is just really gut-wrenching for me. I was doing some study for this message and trying to get my finger on the pulse of American society and particularly American society inside the church as it relates to divorce. And nine, well, not maybe not, let's say seven out of ten of the places that I went to look for good, strong kind of support material, seven out of ten gave joke after joke after joke about marriages that are failing. And I could read them and I could think, (laughs) that's kind of funny. And then it would hit me, wait a minute, there's nothing funny about this. The reason there's not is because I've known too many people in my own family who have gone through this tragedy of relationship breaking. When a divorce occurs, it's as if two hearts that have been sewn together are forcibly just ripped apart. The fallout is incredible. So rather than coming, as many churches do, wagging their fingers and saying, shame on you for that, I stand before you today as one who, as a pastor and as the pastor of this church, at least for today, my commitment and my challenge to us as a church is that we be a safe haven for people who are going through the turmoil of divorce. May Crestwood always be known as a safe place for hurting people. So let's see what Jesus has to say to see if the preacher's just soft-pedaling this or not. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving us the beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount. It will stretch all the way through chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel. And in the process of doing this, we've already seen that Jesus makes a fundamental point. It is the thesis of the entire sermon, and everything in the sermon wraps around this. Matter of fact, we're in a section now where Jesus gives six different examples that kind of are mental pegs for us to hang information on so we can understand better what he says in chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. What he says with that is all of that religiosity of the scribes and the Pharisees, all that emphasis on the external stuff, all of that brow-beating, Bible-thumping, we would call it, kind of stuff that marks who they are, you're going to have to do better than that. And the average person, just like the average person today, hears that and says, well, I don't want to be like them necessarily, but how could I possibly do better than that? So Jesus now expands on that, and he shows us what that means. And so last week, in the first of these six examples that he gives through the rest of chapter 5, we saw that he moves from the external, two weeks ago, from the external of murder. You shall not murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, I'm telling you, even beyond that, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, you've already broken that commandment. 
And then the next one, the one we looked at last week, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. And Jesus said, but I'm telling you, on the inside, if you look at somebody and your mind starts working about owning them, about possessing them, about undressing them with your eyes, then you've already committed the act in your head. So what Jesus is doing now, he's he's emphasized two things that are consistent in both of these two examples. One of them is that this surpassing righteousness of verse 20 is an inside-out thing. You can't just do the right things and not do the wrong things and achieve what Jesus is talking about. This is something that happens from the inside. It's a heart transplant kind of thing. And the second thing that is common in both of these is that Jesus is emphasizing for us that people matter. And what he really is doing is as opposed to the devaluing of people that religion tends to bring, he is instead revaluing them. You look at how we devalue people when we murder them. We're essentially saying, your life doesn't matter enough for you or anybody else to have the say. I will decide whether you live or not. And the essence of sin kicks into full gear. The essence of sin being control, which is I will be God, not you, not God, but me. And so I decide who lives and dies. But that other part of that that I mentioned, Jesus moves it to the inside. And he reminds us that you're not God. Same is true with lust and adultery. Now, I emphasize that again today because it has to form the foundation for us as we come to this text that we're about to read. I say that because one of the things that Christians tend to do is to take a particular verse of Scripture, we read it, it reminds us of another verse of Scripture, and so we jump over to the other verse, and then we read that one, and it reminds us of another verse, and we jump over there and read that one. And then we put them all together to say, now this is what we think this means. The problem that I have with that, first of all, I used to to go to church where a guy would preach from time to time, and he would preach the whole sermon that way. I called it through the Bible in 40 torturous minutes. Because he would have 14, 20 different passages of Scripture and he'd just be all over the place. The problem with that is you never deal with the Scripture. So let's deal with this one on its own merit. We'll reference a couple of others, but we're going to deal with this one on its own merit. Remember, the umbrella under which this comes is Jesus teaching about what surpassing righteousness looks like. It is an internal out kind of thing. And secondly, it values people. So now we come to chapter 5, verse 31. And Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember what I said as we started this off. This is a message of grace. It is not something that anybody ought to be squirming in their seats about at this point. Let's listen to what Jesus is saying here and try it on for size and see what it does for us as a church as we seek to be a grace agent in this community. First of all, let's notice where he starts. The formula is different, but the address is the basic same. He goes to the Old Testament, he takes that established religion that they had, and he emphasizes it first. You have heard that it was said. 
And in this case, he goes back and he picks up from Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through about 4. And you can go back later and read that. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time there today, except to say this. Jesus wades into a debate now in first century Jewish life. There is the conservative school of Rabbi Shammai, and there is the liberal school of Rabbi Hillel. They're at odds, and as is the typical case with theologues, they're arguing about it, and so are their followers. And so here's the basic thing. Jesus steps into that arena. Normally they try to pull him in. In this case, he steps in. But he's not really trying to use this as a teaching time for them about which is right or wrong. What he's doing now is emphasizing, illustrating what surpassing righteousness looks like. These two schools of rabbinical thought took opposite positions on the basic teaching that they thought Deuteronomy 24 had. In Deuteronomy 24, it says essentially this. Moses tells them, when it comes to divorce, a man, as he divorces his wife, has to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, you should know, ladies, if you're not already mad at Old Testament Judaism and New Testament Judaism, now's a good time to get mad at them. Because a wife could not divorce her husband. Only a husband could start that process in Jewish life. And so the husband is the one who's addressed over in the Old Testament. Moses says this, when it comes to divorce, this is the way it needs to happen. Stop, full court stop, listen to what was just said. Even in the time of Moses... Divorce is taken as a given. Moses doesn't say, don't divorce. He says, when it comes to divorce, this is how you do it. Let that stop and register. And then the next step, he says, here's how you do it. You give her a certificate of divorce. It wasn't even a court proceeding. All it really took was a guy with something to write on and something to write with and two friends, two witnesses, and all he had to do was write down and typically the divorce decree was something like this. I'm done with you. You're free to go. Now, by the way, you should know that in a society where women had no rights, were treated largely as property, for a husband to say to his wife, who, by the way, he had been taking care of and was responsible for her care and all of that, for him to say to her, I'm done with you, you're free to go, was almost a death sentence to her. And she had no say in the matter. And yet Moses approaches it as if it's just a matter of fact. When it comes to divorce, this is the way you do it. But you see, the key teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 24... And that's what Jesus is picking up on here. In Deuteronomy 24, the key teaching has really very little to do with the divorce itself. It was expected. The reason they did it was so that there could be a remarriage that would take place. And so Moses writes that to govern the ability for her to be remarried. And so a woman without a decree of divorce was considered to be off limits. And therefore, if a guy had relations with her, then he was guilty of committing... Well, actually, as we said last week, he was not going to be guilty of committing adultery. She was. So the first century Jewish rabbis totally pushed that off. And they start arguing, as theologues tend to do, about the minutiae of it all. 
And instead of looking at divorce itself, they start looking at what are the acceptable reasons for divorce. The conservative group said this, only should a woman be divorced if she is sexually immoral. The liberal group had a different take. They said only should a woman be divorced if you find something that you don't like about her. So let me play that out for you. I'm looking out across the audience this morning. It looks like most of you ladies painted the barn before you left. Hey, if the barn needs painting, paint it. That's all I got to say about that. Except, don't get mad at me. Get mad at these Jewish rabbis. I'm trying to take their position here, okay? The Jewish rabbis on the liberal bent of things would say this. Guys, if you wake up in the morning and that wife of yours rolls out of bed and her hair's a mess and she doesn't have paint on the barn, the face has not been made up, you look at her and in your mind you say, I'm just really not all that knocked out about that look. The liberal side of Jewish first century life said that was sufficient grounds to divorce her. If she burned the biscuits in the morning. Okay, let's bring it to current days. If she didn't make biscuits in the morning. (laughs) The guy could say, I'm done with you. You're free to go. Here's your certificate. Now, lest we get too beat up, uh, too worked up about beating up on first century Jewish liberal rabbi schools, rabbinical schools, think about how easy it is to get a divorce in America today. You don't really need cause, really. Why is divorce so prevalent? I want you to come back to what Jesus is doing here. Remember, the whole point of this message is I'd love for us to start a revolution today. A revolution where marriage works. Where divorce is no longer the norm. And even if you happen to be one who's been through that, that today we start a new move in America. May this be ground zero For a time in American life when marriages work. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. What he is saying to them is, you've got to have a righteousness that moves beyond that religiosity of the scribes and the Pharisees. The one that looks at marriages and argues over the minutiae of it and in the process forget the people that are left behind. A smoldering ruin from the fire that works through. You see, with God, people matter. And it's got to be true in His church. People have to matter. In the days of church where we hold people who have been divorced at arm's length because somehow they've committed an unpardonable sin, by the way, that's hogwash theologically and biblically, and it's a terrible way to treat people. So Jesus comes into this. And you've heard that it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, here's the way to do it. But I say to you, now listen to the way Jesus reframes the entire discussion. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, okay, that tells you that everyone is in the masculine sense. So we could equally justifiably say, but I say to you that when a man divorces his wife, skip the middle part for a second, and we come and he says, and whoever marries, whenever a man or everyone divorces his wife, he makes her commit adultery. Now, how could that be? In Matthew 19, I don't have time to go there, but I just you can write it down and go there later. Matthew 19, the Pharisees and scribes pull Jesus into a discussion about marriage. And now, it really is them trying to trap him. This case, Jesus is the one who brings it up for his own purposes. In that case, they bring it up. They try to pull him in. And those two schools are arguing about which one is right. What is just caused to divorce your wife? And Jesus refuses to take the bait. In Matthew 19, he takes them all the way back to Genesis 2, where he says, God's ideal for marriage has not changed. You can choke on the minutia of your arguments, but the reality is God says one man, one woman, for life. Well, they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that because they were all kinds of wrapped up in arguing about when it's admissible and when it's not. And Jesus goes back to the, to the ideal. There's no intent for him to slam anybody. He's not trying to push women down and hurt women. He's just saying this is God's ideal and we work from the ideal. Except that not a single one of us can live to the ideal. That's one of the reasons that I get so put out with church people about divorced people and whether or not they can serve in the church and whether they can have any kind of leadership role or anything like that. It's like we hold divorce up like it's some kind of unpardonable sin, but we let the same people who won't let a divorced person work in the church gossip like crazy. And we don't say anything about that. That's as much a sin as divorce would be in, we want to use their definitions. People matter. We've got to treat them like they matter. And start acknowledging the fact that divorce is an atomic bomb, as my professor said. So Jesus takes them back to the ideal. When we come to this part of it now, back to Matthew 5, 31 and 32, he just acknowledges, if God's ideal is one man, one woman for life, any time there's another partner besides the one that they married... By God's design, it's outside of the ideal. That explains where Jesus is coming from in verse 32, I think. So let me just kind of bring this home a little bit. I want to, one more time, emphasize that this is an example that Jesus is giving of what surpassing righteousness looks like. In marriage, people matter. But in first century Jewish religious life, people didn't matter that much. What mattered was which school carries the sway in how we interpret when it's okay to have a divorce. And Jesus says, hold the ideal. So let's come back to that for a second. I, I think if we're going to have a revolution, 
And if we're going to reach a point where we can say as a people, regardless of what's going on in my marriage or your marriage or my cousin's marriage, regardless of what happened before today, from this day, we want to hold the ideal. We want this to be a place where we help people hold the ideal. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they weren't trying to help people with their marriages. They were trying to help people out of their marriages. Jesus comes back and he said, you got it all wrong. So look at the people side of this. I I could go on and on. I have several examples here from some of the research that I did this week of the hole that is left in the lives of people after divorce. Many of you know I don't really need to go there because we could take the rest of this day and have testimony after testimony of people who either directly or indirectly have experienced what divorce does standing in this pulpit and it would break our collective hearts if we weren't too callous to hear it. One representative case. Norman Wright, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Always Daddy's Girl. He tells a story there, representative, I think, for all of us, of the cost that children pay in divorce. Remember what I'm emphasizing. No guilt. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I just want to make sure that as a church, we understand why this is important for us. Children, victims. Some would say innocent victims, and maybe that's an accurate term. This one girl, according to Norman Wright, parents, she said she remembered the day that her mom called her and her other siblings into the living room to tell them that mom and dad were getting a divorce. She said she didn't really understand all that was involved in that immediately, but she would come very soon to understand all that was involved in what happens when parents divorce. She said as her dad moved out, she had this inner sense of what's going on. And dad would come from time to time and visit But in the times when he wasn't there and she needed him, she said she was just empty vacuum in her life. And so she went in one day and started going through one of the boxes of the drawers and the chest of drawers there of some of the clothes that he had left behind. She found one of his old sweatshirts. She grabbed it. She took it to her room and she hid it. And in those times when she was most lonely for her daddy who was no longer around, she would take that sweatshirt and sit with it and remember how he had impacted her life. She said those visits from him got less and less frequent until finally he didn't come back anymore. She said she would sit and she would wonder if he was thinking about her. And ultimately, she said, I came to realize that I would never know if I was ever even thought of by him again. Studies have been done, recent studies, of the impact of divorce on children. One person said specifically that half of children divorcees enter adulthood as worried, underachieving, self-deprecating, and sometimes angry young men and women. Divorce hurts. The understatement of the whole message, divorce hurts. And yet we live in a society that doesn't even ask the question Why is it so prevalent? We just go on hurting. 
I think Jesus wades into a first century argument where the women were lost in the argument. And he takes a definitive stand and he holds the standard up and he says, get it right. Because people are dying out there. And he says to his church today, get it right. So the last minute or so that I have, let me tell you what I think we do with this. This is not a message of guilt. It's a message of hope. A message of grace. Because with Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. doesn't matter what's gone before for you. You could have been the most horrific person who ever walked the face of the earth. And God's grace extends to you. And he says it's a new start for you. No matter what's in your background as it relates to this topic, this is a new day. Praise God for that. Jesus Christ gives us the ability to start from today. So start well today. All of us. You may be in a marriage that is healthy. You may be contemplating marriage. (laughs) I could give you some jokes about that if you wanted that. But whatever the case, from this day, let's get it right. And as a church, let's be a place that helps people get it right. One amen. I thought I might get several, but whatever. It's not going to just happen because society out there has a whole different standard than we do. And so with arms that are open and full of grace, we reach out to people and we pull them to ourselves. This takes me back to the Beatitudes. Now, I told you then, there are introductions of the whole Sermon on the Mount. We'll refer back to them from time to time. But remember what Jesus said, blessed are the merciful ones. Don't take a position just because you haven't been through divorce like you got it all together. I know more people in marriages that have not experienced divorce who are miserable because they're not getting it right than I do people who have been divorced. Hello. Get it right. Which means you've got to work on it. Which means, among other things, as a church, that we have to say, this day we extend mercy and grace because that's what our Savior does for us. Let's get it right. So you, working on your marriage, some of you sitting there and your wife's elbow is sore now because they've been whacking you for two weeks. I had a professor who used to talk to us about leadership and he said, guys, as pastors, you need to always be in the business of making deposits into the lives of your people. You treat them right, you do the right things, you love them, you invest yourself in them. Because they're going to come some days as a pastor when you're going to have to make a withdrawal on that relationship. You're going to have to take a stand that they don't like. You're going to have to lead them in a direction they don't want to go. You're going to have to do some things and make sure when you have to take a withdrawal like that that you spent plenty of deposits into them. That's great wisdom and advice on a leadership front. It's also great when it comes to a marriage. You know that one of the studies that I looked at took a group of 100 couples and they tracked them from the before they got married until years after they got married and they specifically wanted to know what helped, what could they find in the ones before they got married that showed that their marriage was going to survive. They found nothing except this. 
in one group, five, excuse me, one out of a hundred of this group, they said in their discussions with one another, one conversation out of a hundred in the groups that stayed married, one out of a hundred had a negative input into the conversation, an insult or a cut down or something like that, just one time out of a hundred. But in the couples that did not make it, by the time they got a divorce, five times the average of an average discussion. In other words, over half of the entire discussion, every discussion, was taken up with insults and cut downs and tearing the other person down. Make deposits in your relationship, not withdrawals. Look at your wife when she rolls out of bed in the morning and her head's or her hair is this way. Her head might be too, by the way. And her makeup's not on. Look at your wife and through the eyes that God gives you, you look great this morning. Don't lie about it. Ask God to help you to see it. You look great, Lord. Love your wives. Love your husbands. Break the cycle of disrespect that ultimately takes you to divorce court. It can happen. It won't just happen. It takes work. Let's pray. Father, we need help. This is one of those things that Satan so easily worms his way into a conversation. He takes words that are meant one way and twists them to be something else. So we pray that you would prove yourself to be God today as it relates to how these words have been heard. Father, help us as a church to be an agent of grace for people, children, husbands, wives, family members, of this difficult part of our modern life. Help us to see the ideal, to realize we can't do it on our own, that it takes nothing less than divine intervention. Help us to be a place that starts a revolution of saying, we want to get marriage right. It's so important. May it start here, Father. I pray that you would help us all to be honest. To look at ourselves, the places where maybe we've been judgmental, places where we've looked down our nose at somebody else, and in the process of that have totally removed ourselves from their pain and treated them as if they were less than human. And please forgive us where that's the case. And give us the courage to go to those people that we've offended accordingly to make it right. Father, we want this place. I believe you want this place to be a station of grace in this community. A place where people who are hurting from life can find help. So we come for help. Father, for those who are here today, Hard to sit through a message like this because of the pain of their own lives right now. Father, I pray that you do your very best with them, that your spirit 
who himself means comforter, called alongside the one who supports us and carries us through, that you would do your best work for them. That they would find not only in this church a place of mercy, but rather, more importantly, they would find in your arms a safe haven and the power to move forward and to right the wrongs, change course. As always, Father, we find ourselves very needy at this point. Help us to get it right. For your sake, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of people, help us get it right. And if you have to be rough with us in order to make that happen, so be it. In Jesus' name.